There's a comfort in consistency, even if the consistency is non-functional. At least it is reliable, more reliable than parents who should have never had children if they couldn't afford them in the first place. As Johnny reminded them over and over whenever he was denied a moped or a 10-speed bike. The pool tables, mopeds, four-wheelers, Atari consoles, towering stereo systems, Izod shirts, memberships to Tippecanoe or Fond du Lac country clubs, and expansive second-story homes of our rich cousins prompted endless remorse, disdain, and frustration, which cowered only to unavoidable, embarrassing shame when those cousins came to visit us at what several of them called, them called the barn. The barn. The barn should have never been sold as a starter family home. In the late 60s, this first framework erected in the new suburban development, Applewood Acres, had been built exclusively as a partial model and a sales office. At best, it had once served as a fragmentary suggestion of possible room schemes, conceivable palettes and textures, modest renderings for what the future neighboring home layouts and interiors could be. By the time the couple who should have never had kids in the first place because they couldn't afford them negotiated the deal, the barn price had come down a whopping $500. The 30-year mortgage on the remaining $24,500 took nearly five decades to resolve, secondary and tertiary mortgages and loans and liens wedging in along the way. With so many other homes on the winding roads of Applewood Acres, I lamented in my teens that they didn't have the foresight to go for broke and acquire a $25,500 or even a $26,000 mortgage for more ample living space. What would a year's worth of lottery tickets have meant in the long run? The saddest saddest house house of all in the development, scarring an unsuitable lot on the inner side of a wide bend. bend. The barn barn. also boasted the misfortune of being an unavoidable eyesore for those coming and going from and to any and all directions. All because a local apple orchard farmer would not sell his land, our neighborhood design, originally intended as a straightforward grid, morphed Morphed into the confusing network of roads that doubled back on each other and bisected and intersected so that folks at 940 Eden Ridge always had to be on the lookout for a careening careening car. Six ranch-style homes sat across from us on the opposite side of Eden Ridge, each with its own generous backyard. The barn, the barn had no had backyard. The barn had no backyard. Barn had no backyard in lieu of three front yards. The real one that wrapped around into the one that was supposed to be the backyard, but was adjacent and just as exposed as the front yard. And the last of the three, the largest, to the left of the sloped driveway and detached garage also as exposed as the other two. Stir craziness within was exacerbated by the lack of an exterior exterior hideaway. hideaway. 
the, gar- the, garage. the garage. An obvious afterthought obscured any view of nature that a housewife could have had from a normal kitchen window as she busied herself making her famous cheesecake or carrot cake or those chewy date and nut bars that Dad and I asked her to pack in our lunchboxes. With nowhere to go for isolation, except for one of the three bedrooms, all of which had broken hollow doors, the mental habituations of the barn rarely steadied themselves in ease. Not all people in the barn refused the heels of bread. Letting nothing go to waste, my mother broke her daily fasts, save for coffee and cigarettes, in the late afternoons and nibbled on one of her sandwich concoctions. Sometimes it was peanut butter and bananas that were about to go bad. bad. Other times, last night's leftover spaghetti found its way between the discarded heels of my brother's protests and in turn created greater protests and admonishing as he ridiculed her for her odd and disgusting tastes. It was not so much that he hated her, although he made that pronouncement regularly in his diatribes of verbal abuse, but he hated more that her ways and means reflected painful truth about our status on the socioeconomic lowest lowest rung. Day after day, meekly in her corner of the dining area, she tended to her prayer books, piled a foot and a half high like a Mayan ruin, collapsing against the one loosely paneled wall and the adjacent yellow smoke-stained wall that phased into the kitchen area from the dining area. Her lopsided meditation spot at the old dilapidated round formica table lacked any portion or parcel of a true retreat. As if the house were a set piece on the stage of a regional theater doing a Sam Shepard play, Curse of the Starving Class or A Lie of the Mind, the sight lines in and out of all spaces at 940 Eden Ridge afforded no solitude. The dining area merged, more so seeped, into the two and a half and a half walls of the living area. From her perch, her latter morning hours put her in a direct diagonal sight line of my brother, on his reclined roost, feeding on his toast with the jam spread to the crustless edges. Neither one with an agenda for the day, nor a to-do list in sight or in mind, They spent several precious hours letting time go by as they avoided the world at large via their chronic morning antics. Do you want toast? She'd ask as a matter of default. My father, rising far sooner than anyone could reasonably expect, especially after having worked the 11 to 7 graveyard shift in front of the open hearth blast furnace at Republic Steel, declined her offer and headed to the basement to retrieve a shirt he had hung to dry the day before. 
He often finished drying and folding the last load of laundry so that she would not have to make another treacherous descent into the dank basement. It gave him a chance to finish his morning prayer cycle, as meditative as hers, but without the histrionics. Contributing in some small way to chores like laundry, drying dishes, or running the vacuum to pick up crumbs from the recliner, he often bought himself enough good graces for a night on the town with no argument. He brought up a load of towels and t-shirts and set them on the table for her to check and likely refold, and avoiding direct visual contact by busying himself with tissue and eyeglass cleaner, he announced that he was going down to see Paul. He was always going down to see Paul. Busying himself with his eyeglasses or some other non-essential duty like emptying and refilling the ice cube trays gave him an out for all but minimal direct visual contact an opportunity for the barest necessity of communication. Twisting and cracking those ice cube trays, he worked out his disdain for that ragged house dress she wore, the colorless one with the snaps and restitched side pockets. He had been shaking his head in disbelief for years at her morning trances of prayerful hallucinations, dithering to and fro, side to side, inhaling and exhaling smoke, eyes aflutter, replaying the movie of her sister Josephine getting shot, or her brother Kaiser drowning, or her mother dying of a broken heart and telling her she should have married the Irishman when he first proposed so that she wouldn't have had to suffer the fate of losing Johnny Breitch, her first husband, and the love of her life on the operating table. Adla, you asked me already and I said no. He responded in an irritated but soft and mild exhaustion to her second request, Do you want toast? As if she had forgotten moments earlier that she had already moaned it out once. Dad knew the score for the day. Belligerence from John, complaining that there was nothing to do, that it would be another shitty summer, and that they shouldn't have had kids in the first place if they couldn't afford them, and that life sucks and then you die. Dad knew that I would content myself with my books, my records, and practice for my piano lessons, either at the piano, which sat against one of the short walls of the living area, or... If John commanded the recliner again, I'd practice at the small Hammond organ in my bedroom. Mom, of course, would eventually consume herself with baking, pineapple upside-down cake, brownies with extra chocolate added to the Duncan Hines box mix batter, and her famous carrot cake, which was more the texture of nut bread and loved by all the guys down at Republic Steel, especially the foreman. Why couldn't Dad have been a foreman? I silently asked myself. Knowing that I would stay inside most of any and every day, except for my occasional bike rides, which were usually an escape route from John's brutal anger, Dad was confident that Mom's coughing fits that were likely to come would be handled well by me, fetching water and bringing it to her side, and kneeling by her until I was sure she wasn't going to die right there in front of me. 
dad also liked departing the house whenever there were full days ahead that could have been spent repairing door hinges, drywall cracks, and holes from John's fist punches, and finishing up that paint job in the bathroom that had been started some years earlier. Ah, out of sight, out of mind. He didn't let the wreckage bother him. Besides, there was no money to buy paint, replacement doorknobs, or switch plates anyway. I'm going down to see Paul. It's too hot to cut the grass now. I'll do it tonight before the six o'clock news. That meant he would be staying away all day, at least until around 4 p.m., Going down to see Paul meant going down to see Paul Shovlin, his closest friend and owner of Paul's Amico gas station and also owner of the Coconut Grove Tavern. Going down to see Paul during the day could mean one of several things. Get gas for the car, get gas for the car on credit, play the daily numbers, or get a loan from Paul to tide him over to payday. Often it meant two or more of those things. During the evening, going down to see Paul meant getting a few drinks at the Coconut Grove and playing the lottery numbers there for the next day, or maybe borrowing money from Paul and getting a few drinks with an IOU, or maybe all three. I'm going down to see Paul. I'm going to play 940 straight for a dollar and box it for 50 cents. 940, our house number on Eden Ridge, was one of his regular lottery bids. I dreamt about my Uncle Paddy. I'm going to play his birthday on the pick four. Do you have any numbers? She'd already be sliding a small, tidy scrap of paper his way with meticulously written codes from her own dreams, a list of numerical combinations cross-referenced with the index of one of her many numerology dream books, which she kept sacred with her mound of holy pamphlets and prayer books atop a rickety plastic cabinet crammed into the corner behind her dining area chair. From the dream book, she extracted, as if doing scientific research, the corollaries for gunshot, yielding a lottery number to honor the memory of her sister Josephine, or the code for water or drowning, yielding a lottery number to pay homage to the memory of her brother Kaiser. Her mother's birthday or date of death or both, as well as those of her father, were probably on the list, There may have also been a secret number key that represented the love of her life, Johnny Breitsch, her first husband, who died on the operating table. If I could have been sure that John wouldn't overhear me and punch me, I would have asked if she had looked up the number for crustless toast. Before leaving... Dad scanned the living area, his eyes glossing over all the abandoned fix-it projects, which he reconciled by saying, Oh, what can you do but forget about it? He brought the toast prince's plate to the kitchen sink, rinsed it, and let it sit there to unmuck from the dried jelly. She or I would wash it later, 
want anything from the star. She heard him, but she did not answer quickly, being drawn back into her prayer reverie and all the histrionics that go with it. He was anxious to get going to Paul's gas station before the phone started ringing and she had the chance to volunteer him to drive her grandiose sister Aunt Victoria all over town to collect rents on her many properties for which he would be rewarded with a crisp one dollar bill for the expense of gas and his time. Want anything from the star? She heard him. But she was prayerfully conversing with Josephine, Kaiser, her mother, her father, and maybe even Johnny Breitch, asking them to look down on us and intercede to Mary and Jesus, who would in turn intercede to the Holy Spirit and God on her behalf until she could be with all of them again. Adla, do you want anything from the star? She heard him, and finally Releasing herself from her thought-filled, slow-motion body gyrations, her face contorting and tilting, eyebrows shifting, forlorn, through thoughts of grocery items that were probably going to be too expensive, at least until payday, and shaking in what might be perceived as an ultimate no, she finally meekly uttered, pick up. Pick up a loaf of bread.